You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 231, Paulus Hook. Last week, I discussed the Sullivan Expedition against the Iroquois, which turned out to be the major continental initiative for 1779. The bulk of the Continental Army, however, remained near New York City in New Jersey and southern New York. The main source of contention in the area that spring had been the British capture of Stony Point in May, then the Continental recapture in July, which I discussed a few weeks ago. In June, while the British had still occupied Stony Point, Washington left the main Continental encampment in Middlebrook, New Jersey, and traveled to West Point in New York. He left command of the main army at Middlebrook with his most senior major general, Israel Putnam. Washington established a new headquarters at a large home in New Windsor, about 16 miles north of West Point. It was from there that he directed the attack by General Anthony Wayne on Stony Point, while at the same time keeping tabs on the Sullivan Expedition to the north. He was also in a good position to receive reports about the Connecticut raids by British General William Tryon that took place in July, and which I also discussed a few weeks ago. Overall, Washington seemed to have a good position. If he did not have the resources to attack the British garrisons at New York, or even Newport, Rhode Island, he also felt comfortable that the British would not be engaging in any major offensive operations against him either. Through Colonel Benjamin Talmadge, he was receiving good intelligence from the Culper spy ring about British activities in New York. In late June, Washington participated in the Festival of St. John's at a local Masonic lodge. On July 4th, he ordered celebratory fire for the third anniversary of independence and also pardoned all Continental soldiers who were then sitting under sentence of death. After the Continentals took back Stony Point in mid-July, Washington ordered the destruction of all fortifications on the Stony Point and abandoned it. Washington believed that the point was too isolated and could be subject to a British counterattack. Instead, Washington moved from his headquarters north of West Point and established himself at another home only a mile from West Point. There, the general personally oversaw improvement of the defenses. He wanted to be sure that if the British attempted to move up the Hudson River again, that West Point would be an impregnable fortress that would block any further movement into the Hudson Valley. By the summer of 1779, Washington had put the Conway Cabal more than a year behind him. He had the solid support of the army, as well as Congress and the public generally. This is not to say everyone was happy with him, though. On July 6th, the Baltimore Journal and Public Advertiser published a front-page anonymous article entitled Some Queries, Political and Military, 
humbly offered to the consideration of the public. The article consisted of a series of questions which were designed to lead the reader to a particular conclusion. The article began by noting the ascension of King George I had brought to power a Tory influence, which had led to rebellion and the limitations of rights in Britain. These included a greater influence of the crown and government, establishment of large standing armies, and restrictions on the liberties of Englishmen. The article went on to suggest that states were taking away the liberties and even the voting rights of dissenters, leading to the new patriot governments going down the same road to tyranny that Britain was already traveling. It also noted a similar concentration of power taking place in America, with that power concentrating in one man, George Washington. It noted that military victories were primarily due to the leadership of men like General Gates and General Arnold, while General Washington himself seemed to get all the credit. It noted that General Lee had warned Washington of his errors during the New York campaign of 1776, and that Washington's incompetence led to those losses, as well as the loss of an army at Fort Washington. The article queried that perhaps Washington, rather than General Sullivan, should be blamed for the loss at Brandywine. Washington also bore blame for the loss of Germantown, and it was only luck that the British did not bother to finish off the army at Valley Forge. The article implied that General Lee was forced out of the army using a stacked court-martial that Washington had put his thumb on the scales of justice and that the removal was based on lies. In short, the article reiterated all the major attacks that had been made on Washington over the prior three years. The response to this attack, however, made clear how much the political situation had changed even in just the last year. To the extent the public read the article at all, people generally condemned it. Washington, of course, did not speak about it publicly. In private letters, he essentially said people were already aware of these complaints and that the public support spoke for itself. President of Pennsylvania, Joseph Reed, had a letter published in the same newspaper attacking the premises of these queries. The editor of the paper ended up publishing an apology for publishing the article in the first place. Eventually, the anonymous author was outed as General Charles Lee, who was at this time still on his one-year suspension following his court-martial. In the end, the article only lowered public opinion toward Lee, while confidence in Washington remained high. Not letting himself get distracted by these sorts of baseless political attacks, General Washington remained focused on the British in New York City. Following the British withdrawal from Philadelphia, the British had also evacuated all of their outposts in New Jersey, except for a very few toeholds right off the coast which could be protected by the British Navy. One of those toeholds was at Paulus Hook. The fort at Paulus Hook sat on the New Jersey side of the mouth of the Hudson River, directly across from Lower Manhattan. It was a particularly strong position for the British to hold because the Hook formed a peninsula jutting out into New York Harbor. The only approach to the fort was through a swampy area that was impossible at high tide. Only a single path avoided the swampy area approaching the fort. The Continentals had built the fortifications there in 1776. After the British took New York and the Americans retreated, the British Army occupied the abandoned Paulus Hook 
and continued to occupy it through 1779. Following the successful attack on the British outpost at Stony Point, the Continentals started looking around for other similar posts to attack, and Paulus Hook looked to them like a viable target. To lead the raid, Washington turned to Major Henry Lee. I'm not exactly clear if Lee had yet received the nickname of Light Horse Harry, but Lee came from one of the most prominent families in Virginia. He was no relation to disgraced General Charles Lee. His father was the first cousin to Richard Henry Lee and Francis Lightfoot Lee, who were both delegates to the Continental Congress. Henry was still a teenager when the war began. Even so, because of his family's status, he received a commission as a captain in the Virginia Cavalry Regiment that was formed in 1775. Captain Lee arrived in Boston by the beginning of 1776 when his regiment was absorbed into the Continental Army. Lee's cavalry company quickly began operating as an independent unit apart from the larger regiment, and Lee was in command of this independent unit. He provided scouting and reconnaissance support to General Benjamin Lincoln and General Lord Sterling in New Jersey during the Forage Wars of 1777. His company also carried out raids against British patrols and outposts. George Washington took notice of this young officer's abilities and began issuing orders directly to the captain as an independent cavalry commander. Washington also offered to bring Lee onto his personal staff, Lee, however, declined, wishing to remain in the field. The following year, while the Army was at Valley Forge, Lee continued his services as a scout and a forager. His men lived off the land during a time when the Army could not provide for them, and even captured some food supplies headed to the British in Philadelphia, which they redirected back to Valley Forge. During the same winter, Lee had multiple encounters with British cavalry units, including one commanded by Captain Bannister Tarleton. By the spring of 1778, after the British evacuated Philadelphia, Washington requested that Lee receive promotion to major and that he be given command of three cavalry troops. Lee continued his work with the Continental Army in northern New Jersey and southern New York, providing reconnaissance and foraging for the main army. When Washington ordered General Anthony Wayne to attack Stony Point, Lee's soldiers provided the intelligence on the fort's defenses. Following the success of Stony Point, Major Lee proposed to General Washington that he be permitted to launch a similar attack on Paulus Hook. Lee first wrote Washington about his plan. Washington invited Lee to come up to West Point, where the two men spoke in person. Washington thought the plan needed more work and sent Lee back to draw up a more detailed plan. Lee sent his best scout, Captain Alan McLean, to surveil the defenses at Paulus Hook. McLean had also done the surveillance for Stony Point, and in that one had even entered the fort dressed as a civilian, speaking to one of the officers about the fort's defenses. Now, McLean and Lee did not seem to get along well personally. McLean was a decade older than Lee. He had raised his own cavalry troop in Delaware when the war began. His precise involvement in the early years of the war is a matter of dispute, but his cavalry troop was one of those who were put under Lee's command in 1778 when Major Lee took command of those three cavalry units. 
Lee and McLean almost immediately ran into confrontations when Lee ordered McLean's troop to give up its horses and travel on foot. McLean had not agreed to that when he joined under Lee's command, but in the end he had no choice but to obey the orders. After conducting surveillance on Paulus Hook, McLean recommended against an attack. He had seen the fort's defenses for himself and had also spoken with a deserter from the fort's garrison who gave him detailed information on the number of men and internal defenses. As I said, the reason the British had maintained this outpost in New Jersey was that it did have a great many good natural defenses. The only land approach was over a narrow path through a salt marsh. The British had placed several cannons behind a defensive enclosure to cover that path leading to the fort. British combat engineers had added abatis and other defensive entrenchments to make any approach even more difficult. To access the fort, the garrison had installed a drawbridge over a water-filled ditch. Inside the fort, there was another redoubt with more abatis, along with even more cannons that could be brought to bear on any attack. To back up the fort, British frigates patrolling New York Harbor could come to the fort's aid if the fort raised an alarm. Major William Sutherland of the 64th Regiment commanded the fort. His garrison consisted of more than 250 men, a mix of regulars, Hessians, and New York loyalists. There were also a sizable group of non-combatants, wives and children of the soldiers who were also living inside the fort. Despite the risks, Lee proceeded with the attack. On the morning of August 18, 1779, Major Lee set out from his base in Paramus. He took empty wagons with him so it would seem to anyone watching that he was leaving on a standard foraging mission. With him were two companies of Marylanders under the command of Captain Levin Hardy. He met up his plan with about 200 Virginia infantry as well as McLean's dismounted cavalry. The total force of about 400 men left Newbridge by 4 p.m. for the 16-mile march to Paulus Hook. The night march did not go well. Major Clark, who was senior to Major Lee, was annoyed that Lee had overall command of the brigade. The two men had words about it during the march, and although Clark remained with the attack, about a hundred of the Virginia soldiers abandoned the mission and disappeared. It took nearly 12 hours for the men to arrive near the fort. By that time, it was nearly dawn, which would ruin the element of surprise. The tide was also rising, making it more difficult to get across the swampy terrain and ditches that impeded passage to the fort. In spite of all this, Lee ordered the attack to proceed. The men were ordered to fix bayonets and not prime their muskets in order to prevent a shot from alerting the garrison. The men broke into three columns for that final two-mile approach to the fort. As the Continentals had done at Stony Point, Lee had a forlorn hope of soldiers sent ahead of the main column to cut down the abatis and make a passage for the main columns. The British spotted the attackers and began firing as the men worked to cut down the abatis. Men reported marching through water as high as their breasts. Most of them had their powder damaged by the water, meaning they couldn't fire their guns even if they had a chance to load them. Without firing a shot, the attackers ran forward, threw themselves over the walls of the parapet, and entered the central redoubt. 
they killed or wounded about 50 of the enemy in hand-to-hand combat. The fighting was over in a matter of minutes, with 158 of the enemy taken prisoner. Amazingly, the attacking Americans had suffered only two killed and three wounded. The British commander, Major Sutherland, was not among the prisoners. Sutherland still held a small blockhouse inside the fort, supported by 40 or 50 Hessians. The Americans were unable to take the blockhouse without taking great casualties. Sounds of alarm shots across the river in New York City made clear that the British were alerted to the attack and that soon British ships would be at the fort ready for a counterattack. Knowing all this, Major Lee opted to leave with what he had already achieved. He left Major Sutherland and the Hessians in their blockhouse. He didn't bother to spike the fort's cannons. He had planned to burn the fort's wooden barracks, but learning that inside of that were invalids as well as women and children, he demurred, not having time to evacuate the building before he could destroy it. Instead, Lee formed his columns and began retreating with his prisoners. The plan was to march west to the Hackensack River, where General Lord Sterling had left 300 men in support along with boats to take the raiders upriver. Lee's men arrived at the Hackensack River to find nothing. As it turned out, the officer had been at the rendezvous point, but had expected Lee to arrive hours earlier while it was still dark. The officer in charge of the boats, seeing no sign of Lee or his men, and not wanting to hang out in daylight in sight of the enemy, had sailed back up to Newark. The Continental situation was becoming desperate. The men had been on the march for over 30 hours with no meal breaks and had fought a major battle. They were soaking wet from their assault on Paulus Hook. Their ammunition was damaged by water. They could only move slowly because the prisoners were dragging their feet, still hoping to be rescued. There was an enemy foraging party in the region that could attack them at any time, and there was no telling if the British were sending out a large rescue party that could also descend on the retreating army at any time. But they had no choice but to continue on foot and hope for the best. Lee divided his three columns to begin the march to the north, dividing the prisoners to march with each column as well. As they began their desperate escape from British territory, they finally had a bit of good luck. About half of the Virginians that had abandoned the attack the previous day showed up for duty. Since these men had working guns and dry powder, Lee divided up the 50 reinforcements to serve as a rear guard for each of the three columns. A short time later, the columns encountered a larger group of 200 Continentals sent by Lord Sterling to search for them. The reinforcements arrived just in time because shortly afterward, a group of Loyalists attacked the column. The attackers were Loyalists under Lieutenant Colonel Abraham Van Buskirk. These were Loyalists who had left Paulus Hook on a foraging mission before Lee's attack. They came across the retreating columns on their return and engaged. Fortunately for the Americans, the reinforcements from Lord Sterling exchanged a few volleys before the attackers withdrew from the superior force. The column then continued its march northward toward Newbridge with their prisoners. Once finally back within American lines, the men collapsed and got some much-needed rest. 
the Continentals celebrated the raid as a great victory. The Continental Congress sent a commendation to Major Lee and struck a gold medal in his honor. Lee was the only officer below the rank of general to receive such a medal during the Revolutionary War. Congress also granted a reward of $15,000 to be distributed among the men who participated in the mission. Of course, this was 15000 in depreciated continental paper money in 1779, so it really wasn't worth as much as it once was, but still a nice gesture. Lee's dispute with Major Clark later resulted in Lee being court-martialed for usurping command from his superior officer. However, since Lee had taken the command pursuant to direct orders from General Washington, the court-martial acquitted him with honor. Since Lee did relatively little damage to the fort itself other than capturing most of the garrison, the British sent reinforcements to reoccupy the fort at Paulus Hook. They would continue to garrison the fort until the end of the war. Next week, John Paul Jones raids the British coast. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter, also to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Mike Hager. I also want to thank Michael Mulhern and John Vizana for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. As I mentioned last week, I'm considering trying to work on the podcast full-time if I can get 300 continuing pledges on Patreon. I hope that you consider making a pledge today. You can find my links to my Patreon page at the bottom of each blog entry. Just go to blog.amrevpodcast.com. I still have a ways to go before I can actually reach that goal of 300 subscribers. I did get a few, quite a few last week, and I want to try to thank you all by name next week. I was also pleasantly surprised that quite a number of existing supporters stepped up to increase their levels of commitment to the show. Uh, many of you have also reached out to me via email or other means to encourage me and to express your appreciation for the work that goes into producing this podcast. I thank you all for that encouragement, and it really does mean a lot to me. 
So this week, we covered the Paulus Hook Raid. In the broad scheme of things, the raid did not really amount to much. The Americans took a few prisoners, but the British retained control of the location. The raid did do wonders for Light Horse Harry Lee's reputation from the war. Lee will go on to fight in the Southern Campaign alongside Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox, and we'll talk about that in future episodes. After the war, Lee would serve in the Continental Congress, the Virginia Assembly, and would also serve as governor of Virginia. He's probably most famously remembered for eulogizing the death of George Washington as first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. Lee would also eventually serve as a major general in the U.S. Army, playing key roles in the Whiskey Rebellion and the Quasi-War. General Lee had expected to serve in the War of 1812, but President Madison denied him his commission. Instead, Lee was badly wounded while trying to defend an anti-war newspaper editor in Baltimore against a pro-war mob. Lee would then go to the West Indies to recover from his injuries, but died several years later while attempting to return to Virginia. When he left Virginia for the last time without his family, his youngest son, Robert E. Lee, was only five years old. Much of Harry Lee's later career was based on his war service, and much of that success was built on the credit he received for Paulus Hook. Congress's praise for Lee was coming in around the same time as it was ignoring General Sullivan's success in the Sullivan Expedition. I wonder if General Sullivan's frustration at Congress's lukewarm response for his campaign against the Iroquois was highlighted by Congress's enthusiasm over the comparatively minor raid on Paulus Hook that did not even destroy the fort there. Congress's celebration of the event may have been, in part at least, because Lee was related to two of the delegates in Congress. Although several other junior officers involved in the campaign were promoted shortly thereafter, a second congressional commentation, which named ten other officers who were involved in this raid, was rejected without explanation. Only Major Lee received direct praise for the success of the mission. Paulus Hook also created some problems for Lee. In addition to the court-martial that I mentioned in the main show, he would have long-standing issues with many of his fellow officers because they felt he didn't appropriately share credit for the success of the mission, and for several other missions. Several officers under him would request transfers later in the war, but on balance, though, Paulus Hook was a key component of Lee's future successful career. If you want to read more about Lee, there are several good biographies. My recommendation this week is Light Horse Harry Lee in the War for Independence by Jim Pycook and John Beeks. Now, this is a relatively short book published in 2013, and it focuses on Lee's service in the Revolutionary War. As for the authors, uh, P. Cook is a history professor who has written several books on the era, mostly focusing on military history. Beeks has written several good biographies, including one on General DeKalb. So, if you're interested, the book is Light Horse Harry Lee in the War for Independence. My online recommendation is an article about one of the men who has been largely forgotten. It's a Revolutionary War Journal article called Captain Alan McLean, Death-Defying Spymaster of the American Revolution, 
by Harry Shenowulf. The author, Shenowulf, has written numerous articles about the Revolution, as well as a couple of novels. His look at Maclean in this article covers a much overlooked but fascinating character from the Revolutionary War. This is a pretty lengthy article, but it is interesting, particularly discussing the contribution to Army intelligence. As always, I've included a link to the article on my blog. Go to blog.amrevpodcast.com, or you can go to my website at www.amrevpodcast.com for a list of links to all my past book and online recommendations. My question this week asks, what conflicts did the Hessians fight in before the American Revolution? And why did they quit the mercenary business after that? Well, first I want to say that the German-speaking auxiliary soldiers who fought with the British in the American Revolution were not mercenaries in the sense that we use that term today. They were not just fighting for themselves to the highest bidder. The soldiers were fighting under the orders of the leader of their country. King George made deals with several German leaders to provide military assistance in America. The soldiers that came to America did not come from a single German state, but from several different ones. The largest group came from Hesse Castle, which is why all of them are generically referred to as Hessians. Many of these small German states had the need for relatively large armies in proportion to their populations. In times of peace, such large armies were quite expensive, meaning that having them fight in wars alongside allies was a way to help cover the costs of maintaining them. And this was nothing new. In 1706 and 1707, 10,000 Hessians fought with another army in what is today Italy, before moving to what is today Belgium in 1708. In 1714, a Hessian army fought for Sweden against Russia. Britain also hired Hessians on several occasions prior to the Revolution. King George I made use of the Hessians in 1715 to combat the Jacobite Rebellion. During the War of Austrian Succession, which was 1744, Hessians fought for the British again in what is today Belgium. Hessians also fought alongside the Bavarian army that same year. In 1762, during the Seven Years' War, most of the Hessian army was fighting in a coalition of German states against France, and that fighting was largely financed by Great Britain. So, when the need for soldiers cropped up in 1775, King George III turned to this often-used resource for a readily available group of soldiers. Now, about two-thirds of the German soldiers who went to America never returned. About a third of them died in the war, and another third opted to live in America. So, when the American Revolution ended, it would take some time for these armies to rebuild. However, in 1803, Hesse, with most of the other small German states, was captured by Napoleonic France. Napoleon made his brother the leader of the area, so there were no longer German princes who were around to rent out their armies to any allies. If you have a question that you would like me to answer, please reach out to me on social media. I'm active on Facebook, Twitter, or Quora. You can also email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. 